everyone. I'm thrilled you're joining us for our brand new video cast, Bespoke Conversations here at Skylark International. I'm Nikki Sims and I'll be your host as together we throw some lights on some of the key issues affecting women, both closer to home and across the world. We'll be hearing the inside track from some incredible women who are busy out there changing the story for others in their day-to-day -day lives. Our conversations will touch on issues particularly affecting women at times, some of which will be sensitive and may trigger past trauma or painful experiences. Today's conversation will touch on the area of baby loss and grief. I'm joined today by Zoe Clark-Coates, MBE, author, CEO, and founder of the Mariposa Trust. So, are you ready to be inspired, informed, and invested? Let's dive straight in. Zoe, welcome to Bespoke Conversations. I'm so happy to have you join us. Thank you for inviting me, it's such an honor. Now listen, I know that you have done a lot of things in your life and we've heard some of your credentials, but here at Bespoke Conversations, we want a little bit more of the inside track. So could you share for us today just a couple of things, surprising things about you that not many people would know? Okay, well, one would be I'm allergic to hedgehogs, <laughs> which is a very random allergy. That is so random. Yeah, but I always like to tell any server who comes to our table and asks, have you got any allergies that I'm allergic to hedgehogs? Just, <laughs> just for their reaction. Um, but yeah, so that's one random thing. And I've never heard of anyone else being allergic to them. So it feels really special. You are very unique. Yeah. Um, the other thing, when I was young, I swallowed a whole pencil. Wow. That also is a random fact. Now that is an impressive thing to pop on your resume. So it's something like Zoe Clark Coates, yeah. allergic to hedgehogs, yeah. can swallow a whole pencil. Yeah, in one go. Yeah, absolutely. And that everyone always says that's why I'm a writer. Ah, nice. Author, MBE. Yeah. CEO of the Mariposa Trust. Now, so much that we want to dive into here. Tell us a little bit more about your story. I know that when I first met you back in 2013, actually we had a phone conversation and the thing that really struck me about you was your warmth, your passion, but also the power of your story because yours has been one of loss and grief. That hasn't been easy. You've navigated a lot, but it's also been one that's been tinged with hope as you've taken some of the pain that life has brought you and turned them into pearls that have supported and helped many others. So I'd love to take you back to that time in your life that really was a very, very defining moment for you. Can you tell us more about your story? Yeah, well, to go a bit further back than that, I trained as a counsellor. I was already a grief specialist prior to ever going through loss myself. I trained, but then I'd gone into the corporate world and myself and my husband set up an international events PR company. So our clients were people like Coca-Cola, Bupa, big, large companies and government. 
and we were living life. We were living our best life. We delayed having children because we loved what we did. I didn't use my counseling training every day in a therapy setting. However, I did use it every day in a business setting, which is really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, but we waited to have children. And then I think like most people, you think you can just decide to have children and then it will just happen. And we were really blessed that that did happen. We did conceive really quickly, but tragically, we lost our first baby. And having trained, I knew the process of grieving and how you're meant to talk about the loss, etc. However, we didn't. We didn't follow any classic advice and we decided to just keep it private, not discuss it with anybody. I didn't want to be one of those statistics that I'd been hearing about that one in four people will lose a baby. And it just felt too harsh a reality, I guess. Um, we decided to try again and were really blessed to get pregnant a second time. And this time it just felt different. And we'd gone for a scan and we'd seen our baby um, was happy and growing and everything was great. And um, during the pregnancy on one day, things just felt different. I started to spot bleed and we managed to get a scan really quickly. And that scan reassured us that everything was great and fine, which was wonderful. However, within 24 hours, things had taken a turn and I just really felt that the baby had died. And we went to the hospital, were met with really bad care, little concern. And that really shocked us. And we were actually asked whether we were so upset because we'd paid for the baby, whether was it because we'd had IVF, wow. which was really shocking and actually really robbed us of that permission to be grieving and feeling what we were. But we were told that everything looked fine to go away. They couldn't rescan. I'd had a scan only a day before, two days before. And so they told me nothing will have changed much. Tragically, it had. 24 hours later, we had a private scan, or 48 hours maybe after. And in that scan, um, we were told our daughter had died. And it was just heartbreaking. Our world felt like it had literally changed overnight. And we went on to deliver her naturally. Say we, because it's not just the woman that goes through this. This is something you go through as a couple. Absolutely. And we delivered our daughter straight into heaven. And I didn't think I'd ever recover, actually. But I did. We decided to try again and tragically lost our third child. And it was after that that I really didn't know if we could continue on trying. I felt like maybe we were done. Maybe our path wasn't to raise an earthly child. And I think that's where faith did help us because we really believed that one day we'd be reconnected with those children. And maybe we should stop trying on earth um, to grow our family. But I like to think God had different plans because we decided to not try again and then we found out we were expecting. And that was the first baby we got to bring home from the hospital. That's our miracle daughter, Esme. And we thought we'd only have one child. We thought we'd stop there, but we didn't. And we decided to try again. And 
thought, I guess like most people, if you've had a child that's been born healthy after going through loss, you feel like whatever's wrong has been somewhat fixed. So we really believed our dealings with loss were behind us. Decided to try again and we were going for regular scans and everything was beautiful. We were watching our little boy grow on the screen and on one day we went for a scan and our daughter Esme came with us and tragically our consultant's face just fell and he said, I don't even know how to tell you, but his heart stopped beating. And yet again, we were faced with that trap door opening and the world just crumbling before our eyes. But this time we've got our daughter with us watching our face. And so I asked to leave the room and I remember going into the restrooms and just screaming and just falling down the walls crying and thinking, how are we going through this yet again? Um, we decided to go the surgical route for the first time and we had him delivered in theatre. And a while after, we decided to try again. And we decided to tell the whole family we were expecting again on Christmas Eve at our Christmas Eve party we have every year. And we just told everyone we were expecting and the whole family were like, oh my goodness, the best news. Five minutes later, no joke, I went upstairs and started no. bleeding. And um, we were told that we'd gone through loss yet again. And that whole Christmas we were grieving. But come January, I was just getting sicker and sicker and I knew something was wrong. So we decided to go for a consultant's appointment, at which point he said, I'm just gonna scan you just to see what's going on. And we found out they were wrong. I'd never lost the baby. And um, we quickly found out we were expecting twins. And so we went from not having a child growing within to expecting twins, which was such a blessing, such a shock, but such a blessing. Massive shock. Massive shock. Um, tragically, during that pregnancy, I got sicker and sicker and one of the babies died. And I was left fighting for my life and the life of our daughter who was remaining growing inside, but a miracle happened and I survived and our daughter survived. And we got to bring home our next miracle daughter, Bronte, um, from the hospital. So that's our story. So, so ironic that I was already a trained grief specialist and then I encountered such grief and loss. Um, yeah, it really yeah. is. And I think as I listen to your story, I firstly just want to pause and say thank you for your vulnerability because one of my observations when it comes to this area is it still seems to be surrounded with a level of stigma and a level of silence. And so for you to be courageous enough to keep telling your story, uh, break something open for many other women, and not just women as you've rightly pointed out, why do you think there is still such a stigma and silence around this topic? And, and what are you doing to change the story on that? Great question. I think the stigma is around baby loss, but actually here in the UK, it's also about all grief. Yes. We're not good at the British at dealing with loss and death. That's so true. And that's just magnified when it comes to baby loss. Part of that is there's a few known rules 
around baby loss. Don't tell anyone you're expecting until after your 12-week scan, just in case you go through loss. That's a not-so-hidden message of don't tell us if you go through loss. Otherwise, everyone could tell anyone the moment they're expecting. Because if you go through loss, you need the people to support you. And it's really hard to tell people you've been expecting but gone through loss if they didn't know. So part of it is the 12-week rule. But also, I just think, because we're bad at talking about loss and grief, and because this is sadly so common, people are almost scared about talking about it. If I talk about it, does that mean I might experience it? It's uncomfortable. It's um, hard to know what to say, what not to say. And that magnifies the taboo nature of talking about loss. We always fear we're going to make it worse for somebody. So I think for all of those reasons, it's become something that we're encouraged not to talk about and to keep private. And that's part of what I feel my job is, our job as an organization is, as the Mariposa Trust, which most people know by our primary support division saying goodbye. And that's our job to start this conversation and to say it's okay to talk about it, but also not to do that in a forceful way that if you've gone through loss, start talking. You no, know, that's not helpful some either. people don't need that. They need that space to grieve privately. But for others, they need that gentle encouragement and acknowledgement that it's okay to talk and that by sharing their story, they're very likely to help other people. I find your observations so true. In my context, in church leadership, I think that even though I'm dealing mainly with people who have faith in Jesus and think a lot about eternity, there is still a real difficulty around breaking this subject open. I think people are afraid of saying the wrong thing, as you said. Now, just thinking about grief more widely as you've broadened it out, how, um, as you've supported people going through that journey and having navigated it yourself, what insights could you offer us today that might be helpful? In terms of how to support or how to grieve well? I think a bit of both, actually. Okay. I think in terms of how to grieve well, it's about being brave enough to submit to the pain. I think yeah. we're wired to want to run from things that hurt. Absolutely. And actually, when we're grieving, you need to press in. And I think in terms of how to support well, it's encouraging people to do that. So it's changing the dialogue instead of saying, wow, you look like you're doing so well. Um, look at you today. You're showing up. You're laughing. You're... Which actually, to somebody who's grieving, that's like a punch to the stomach. That's like saying you don't love them enough. You're not... Um, showing enough emotion so maybe you don't care for them enough and so actually we're robbing people of the permission of just showing up in whatever way that feels comfortable to them grief is such a roller coaster it really is and we have been taught so many wrong misconceptions around grief that there's this neat stepping stone process and even the people that formulated that many years ago have since gone on to say okay this is wrong and um, this isn't how it works because we have been led to believe there's neat stepping stones we, as grievers, feel like we're grieving wrong. Or oh, hang on, I'm meant to be over this by now. I'm meant to be on to the next stage. And as people who support those who are grieving, we're often like, 
Oh, do you think that they need some encouragement to do something different here? Are they stuck? I mean, I can't tell you how many family members come to me each week saying, I'm really worried about my family member. They're just crying all the time. I don't feel they're doing um, enough work on that and they're shutting themselves away. Is that okay? I'm like, whatever they want to do is okay. And we need to be telling the people who are grieving that and really encouraging them in that, that whatever they do and whatever they feel is right for them is okay. I just want to pick up on that because that's so helpful. But for those who haven't experienced grief and loss, I know it's something that we will all experience at one time in our life or another, but there's that sense for me that you don't know till you know. So true. Um, and so for anybody for whom that might be relevant today, could you just say what are helpful things for them to say to be able to support somebody who's grieving? Yeah, avoid all cliches. First one, never, well, at least. That's really common in grief. At least you've managed to get pregnant. Wow. I couldn't stay pregnant. So you've always got this comeback. At least they live to a good old age. Well, they've been robbed of life when they still had so much to give. A grieving person will always have something that they can say back. So we need to cut away all cliches, all at least, all minimizing. And don't say you know what it's like if you don't know what it's like. And even if you've walked a similar path, their path's going to be different because your whole life story plays a part in your grieving journey. So even if I'm sitting with somebody holding the hand of someone who's just lost a child, their story is so different to my story. So I would never say, I know exactly what you're going through right now. I would let them know that I know the pain of loss. I'd let them know that I know that feeling of desperation, but I'd never say, I know exactly what you're going through. And so show up but don't minimize, don't at least, and tell them, I can't take away your pain. I wish I could, but I can't, but I can listen. When someone is grieving, they're often traumatized too. Yeah. And how we deal with that trauma is by allowing people to reshare their story over and over again. So giving people permission to do that without rolling your eyes and saying, yeah, I know this, I've heard it before. Just sit in that space and be, hold it as a sacred space because it really is a sacred space. Wow, that is so good because I think the temptation is to stop people from talking about it because you don't want them to feel any more pain. Yeah. So I love that. I think one of the things I've also noticed when it comes to this topic is that we have a tendency to put grief on some kind of hierarchical scale. So there's this comparison game that we're tempted to play that, you know, if, we, if I heard a story like yours, that perhaps your grief is bigger than somebody who maybe didn't experience that same amount of losses. Yeah. Can you speak into that, that yeah. hierarchy of grief that we're so tempted to try and create? Yeah. And that's a big thing in this culture, especially in the UK. Yeah. Other nations, not so much actually. North America, absolutely. People try and minimize people's losses by either the extent of loss that they've gone through, the trauma that's been connected to the loss, or the age of the person. So if somebody loses a toddler, for instance, they will say, well, that's much worse than losing a baby at birth. And, and it's really hard for people who are navigating that because it robs them of the permission to talk about their pain. I remember talking with this one lady who had gone through 
um, a loss at birth. And she told me the fact that her neighbor lost their teenage child. And everyone kept coming up to her and saying, well, at least you lost your child at birth. Your neighbor's son, they've been robbed of so much more. And so she said that she just couldn't ever talk about her child. And that meant she kept her loss almost secret. And that secret nature of that loss meant the fact that she'd got stuck in the grieving process, had never been able to feel that she could move through that pain. And so we've got to stop this societal um, competitiveness, which it is, in categorizing grief as one is worse than another because everyone's grief is important. Everyone's loss is sacred, is important, is the most important thing in the world to them. And so that's one of the reasons we never talk about the gestation of our losses because people, when we did initially, kept saying to us, oh, you've gone through something so much worse than us. Um, losing at that stage was so much worse than my loss. And I was like, no, it makes no difference. Every one of my children's lives mattered. The, the stage of their loss, the stage of their death meant nothing compared to their loss being, their lives being taken, the loss we encountered. And so we stopped saying about it and said, all of our losses are equally as important because everyone's loss is valid and important. And so, yeah, we need to stop saying our losses are less important than others because we're buying into that story. Absolutely, and that is such a helpful insight that for those of us who want to support people going through grief can hang on to and remember. So I want to widen the lens now a little because I'm picturing you going through unimaginable sorrow, navigating loss, all of the emotions, young family as well, so life wasn't stopping for you, all of those balls in the air. And at some point within that, there's this moment where you think, I think there's something I'm supposed to do to change the story here. What was the point when you realized that perhaps some of that pain that you had walked through could produce pearls for others? Yeah, well, I think during the whole loss process and over those years, I was aware of what was missing, partly because of my training and partly because we were alerted to that by our consultant, who was then a friend, who said, don't go looking for support because there's nothing good out there, which really shocked me, given what, that we were experiencing something that was super sadly common, I couldn't believe there wasn't excellent support out there. We were really blessed. My mum's a therapist, which is why I trained. And so she immediately came to stay with us. So we'd got a therapist on hand. That was so good. Really helpful. And we were aware that that was a really unique position. Not only was I trained, my mum was able to sit even through the night talking with us through those heartbreaking hours where you're just feeling like you're broken forever. To have somebody on hand like that was something that we really knew was a special gift. But we were looking for what could we do that would be that gift for other people. And I think it was when Bronte was around six months of age, I remember praying and just being, God, how are we gonna turn all of this suffering into something that could help other people? 
I knew what we'd gone through wasn't something that God wanted. It wasn't part of his plan. And again, that was something that was being said to us quite often. I can imagine. Um, well, God's going to use all of this for the good. Um, he allows these things to happen for a purpose. And I remember all the way through thinking, no, that's not the God I serve. That's not the father I go to when I'm heartbroken was a God that would allow me to go through all of this suffering and brokenness just so I could do something to help right. him. That's not a compassionate God. A compassionate God would just give you that call and say, go do it. Um, and so I was really acutely aware that what I'd gone through and what others were going through it was all because of the fall. It was because of Adam and Eve. It wasn't because of a God-given, well, I'm going to create them to go through that loss and they will do this for me, like he was this evil puppet master. And so I was really keen to change that um, almost perception that I feel that a lot of people are fed when they go through loss in a Christian context. That's so interesting. And... But I was also aware that what we were needing to do was offer that support to everybody. And so anything that we were going to found needed to be secular and not Christian because all of these people were going through this every year. Over 30 million people every year wow. around the world go through baby and child loss. That's so a staggering stat. It is staggering. 250 odd thousand here in England every year in the UK. And so there's a lot of people going through this. So there was a lot of support going to be needed. And so I decided what we needed to do was start a division of our company. And that division would help people navigate loss by holding remembrance services called saying goodbye services. So I spoke to my husband, who's my soulmate, best friend, who instantly gets on board with anything that I pitch Thank the Lord for giving me a husband who equally just goes, yes. He is a good man. He's a good man. And he was just like, absolutely, let's do it. So we launched this not-for-profit division of the company. The family thought we were crazy, not going to lie, because we'd waited to have children until we were really financially secure. And then we were pitching something here that meant all of our company's money and finances would need to be thrown in to make this Wow. Thing. And so it felt really irrational that we had waited and then we were practically going to give all our money away. Yeah, so it's a bit counterintuitive. It really <laughs> is and didn't make sense on paper. But thankfully, the family went, it's crazy, but we'll support you. Yeah. And we launched what was known as saying goodbye as part of our company. What we didn't know is it would literally explode overnight. And it became one of the leading charitable organizations in Britain, practically within weeks. And nothing could have prepared us for that. And quickly, we had to make a decision whether our company was going to let that go, what we'd bought and founded out of all of this pain, or was it going to just be passed on to somebody else to run, which we knew we couldn't do, that this was something we had birthed and journeyed. And what was really needed was an organization like this being run by people who got it, who knew it. Absolutely. 
because you can't really know what it's like unless you've been through it. That was really important. So we decided to let go of all of our corporate clients and the company would just serve the charity so the charity could do what it needed to do, which was hold remembrance services around the world and give people the opportunity to come together and say, my babies matter and to give them an opportunity to grieve alongside people who get it, who have understood it. So within a matter of weeks, um, it had grown, as I said, and within months, our website was having over 650,000 hits a month. That's mind blowing. Yeah, and we realized that this was not something that was just needed, it was something that was being cried out for globally that people needed to hear from other people as well as from their families that their babies mattered. And so it quickly became a standalone charity called the Mariposa Trust and saying goodbye just became one of its primary support divisions. And it exploded even more, I think it's fair to say. And we quickly founded lots of other divisions to support people in pregnancy after loss, people who were finding it hard to actually have a child and were having fertility, infertility issues. And it became the organization that it is today, which is it operates globally. We support over 50,000 people a week. That's incredible. Through loss. And um, yeah, with the organization there for anybody, those of faith or no faith. And 70% of NHS hospitals refer to us directly. And we're there for anybody who needs us, whether it be the person who is grieving or a family member or friend who's even trying to support somebody. That is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I've been to some of those saying goodbye services and been really taken with the way that you leave space and give every life dignity. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. One of the things that has been like a thread woven through everything that you've said is your faith. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it's hard to reconcile the idea of faith mm -hmm. with suffering. It's one of those age old things. And actually for people who don't have faith, one of the questions I get asked most is, how on earth can you reconcile this concept of a loving God with the fact that good people everywhere go through such hard things? How have you managed to allow that whole thing of your faith in Jesus and what you've walked through to sit together? Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? It's, I think it's hard because there's such a tension of wanting to honor your faith and that God help get you through the loss or losses that you've gone through, but also the fact that this isn't something that God wanted ultimately for you to go through, but you still are. And wrestling with the fact that God could have prevented the loss. And I don't have all the answers and I'm certainly not gonna sit here and pretend I do. And I think I'm gonna be the one of the first in the queue in heaven asking, well, why did this happen? And why couldn't this have happened instead? But what I do know is that all suffering isn't part of God's plan, but he does promise to use all pain for good if we want to. And again, I think that's really important for people to hear because 
I was kind of led to believe that it was just something we're automatically instructed by God, use it for good, use it for good. But actually, again, I don't believe we serve a God like that. I believe it's an offer. The fact that some of the greatest things we are able to achieve and do come out of our deepest wounds. And that's a choice because he's a compassionate God and he's not gonna make us do that. For some, that's gonna be too traumatizing and too painful. But for others, it's going to empower them and help them move forward with a passion and a conviction they would have never had. I'd got all those training blocks in place. I'd got the skills to help people, but my personal experience gave me way more than all of those years of therapy training could ever have done. Walking in that valley and that place of suffering taught me so much more. And so with those things, the training and the personal experience, I know I'm best placed to help people through it. And I think that's where my faith really came in, that trust in God, that he would be with me in my greatest pain. He wouldn't prevent it, but he would walk with me in it. And I love that promise mm -hmm. because yeah. he walks with us through everything mm -hmm. that we go through in life. We can be assured of that. Yeah. It's interesting what you say because we're not very good at tension, are we? No. We're not very good at allowing things to, to sit together uncomfortably. And I think particularly um, being British doesn't help with that either. Yeah. We just like everything kind of tied up with a neat bow. Yeah. Um, but there's something so liberating, isn't there, about learning to sit in the mess sometimes, yeah. not having all of the answers, despite hanging on with that trust in God. Yeah. I love how you've described that. And I think that will be really helpful for lots of people watching this video cast. Coming into to land, we will have women from all sorts of stages of life watching this and listening to you. We can't help but be inspired by everything that you've done. And there's so much that we haven't been able to touch on, campaigning, the government review that is affecting incredible change for, uh, for this on a, on a campaigning level and an advocacy level. But it would also be really easy, if I'm honest, to think I feel a bit inadequate what on earth could I do listening to, to Zoe's story? What, what is there for me to do when it comes to taking next, next steps for changing the story for someone else? Yeah, well, I would say that anyone who feels inadequate know that the people who have even achieved those things feel inadequate too. I think that's one part that's of being great. a woman. So true. And the fact that I will still be looking at all of the people going, oh my goodness. I could do that and I'm not doing that. And and that guilt and that... That is really reassuring to know. I yeah, absolutely. So I think we're all in similar shoes and we'll all feel like there's something more we could be doing. However, I think we all can make the choice to do it or not do it, whether you sit in the back seat or the driving seat. And I'm not going to say everyone should be in the driving seat because I do believe that there's a place on the bus for everyone. And for some people, that's halfway down the bus. For some people, it's at the back of the bus. For some people, they're driving it. So I'm never ever going to be saying that everyone should go and start an organisation, should go and work with government like I do. 
because actually one working for government is horrible. <laughs> um, it's got its beautiful moments, yes, but also it's got horrendous moments and it's really, yeah. really tough. I can imagine. And so I'm not going to encourage anybody to do that sort of work unless you're really called to do some things. I think you're putting yourself in a stress that you don't need to be in. So first, find out what your call is on your life. Two, make a choice whether you want to step up and do something big or something small or and for some your small is going to be big for others and your big is going to be small for others and so there's it's what's important to you but i think looking at your own story your own call what makes you tick is what will make you really successful in what you do and that might be being a stay-at-home mum that might be leading a church. That might be being something in media or something in a commercial setting. Whatever that might be, you've got to look at what makes you tick and what's your passion, because that's absolutely the root of success, I think. I work seven days a week, countless hours a week, but it doesn't feel like work because it's driven by passion and a call. And that's how you know you're in your sweet spot, right? Absolutely. And that's where I think you really can be fulfilled in what you're doing, but also feel secure in what you're doing. If you're trying to step in other people's shoes, it will always feel uncomfortable. So it's trying to discover the shoes you need to be in yourself. I love that. Wear your own shoes. Yeah. That is a really good take home for us. Now, I'm going to ask all of my guests on Bespoke Conversations the same two questions. Quick fire okay. as we come in to land on this. Not scared. No? Okay. I'm not giving you a lot of time to think. <laughs> but first of all, which woman has inspired you most? Oh, okay. That's easy. And that's Brene Brown. And I absolutely love her. Yeah. And I love her because she's taught us the power of vulnerability, she which really I think is absolutely essential in whatever walk of life you're in, whether it be your day to day life or work life, that being vulnerable is not a weakness, it's actually your strength. And that's something I really needed to hear as well. I'm a really private person. I didn't want to talk about loss at all. I never wanted to be defined by it. But what I realized by walking into that space was I'm not defined by it, but I have been refined by it. And by walking into that and not being scared of sharing my story and by being willing to be vulnerable with it, that's where the power has laid in the work that we do. Um, but I needed the encouragement of women like Brené to say, this is good, this is right. Um, well, that is a very handy lead-in for my okay. final question. Okay. Because if you were to leave us with a very short, mm -hmm. just a few words, motivational quote, what would it be? I've been thinking about this for myself just to give you time to think. And mine would be, start where you are. Okay, that's How about great. You? That's great. Mine would probably be one of my quotes, actually, which is, grief is relentless, but so is hope. Oh, I love that. Because I think it's important for people to know whatever they're encountering, that there's hope on the other side. And we just need to wait for hope to resurface. Zoe Clark Coates, thank you. Thank you.
this has been episode one of Bespoke Conversations. Thanks again to the wonderful Zoe Clark Coates. It's been a joy to speak with you. If you'd like support and to find out more about the work of Mariposa Trust, head to mariposatrust.org. You can get hold of Zoe's books on Amazon. To catch future episodes, head over to bespokeconversations.co.uk. And if you want to get in touch with us about anything, please email us at info at bespokeconversations.co.uk. Thanks to you for joining me today. We'll see you very soon. If you enjoyed this episode of Bespoke Conversations, please hit subscribe and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram at bespoke underscore conversations and on Facebook. Search for Bespoke Conversations and give the page a like. We look forward to welcoming you next time. Your host today has been Nikki Sims and with thanks to our guest, Zoe Clark Coates, MBE. Music composed by Rachel Maddox. With special thanks to our production team and everyone on the wider team who made the live filming such a success. The opinions expressed in this video cast are not necessarily those held by Bespoke Conversations or Skylark International. Any expressed views were accurate at the time of filming, but may or may not reflect the views of the individuals concerned at a later date. This video cast should not be considered as a piece of professional advice. Any reproduction or redistribution in any form is prohibited without permission from Skylark International.